Hello and welcome to another weekly teaching from Vineyard Community Church, St. Louis. So, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, a couple of things. James 2.14.26 is our main passage. And of course, we're working through this little book. Is, is, uh, how many of you are working through this book? Are you like up through number four? Yeah, you know, a lot of times we have little books and I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do that, and I don't. This one I have actually been doing, and I really have appreciated it for the most part. I tend to be critical, so I find things I don't like in almost everything. But um, that's another story. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get better at that before my death. Who knows? If not, uh, I will uh, be perfected when I see him, which is good enough. So um, today we're talking about that passage in James 2, 14 through 26. And if you have any familiarity with James, you're familiar with this statement, right? Has anyone not heard this before? Faith without deeds is dead. Now that's the New International Version. If you came up with King James, faith without works is dead, is dead. Now, I know my own personal theological sojourn uh, where I've where I, what I've been exposed to, what I've been taught, what I've learned, what I teach now, uh, the things I've experienced. This is a loaded verse for a lot of people, isn't it? And so just, I just want you to kind of tune into that and think what that means to you. Because sometimes we have things in our head that were put on us by men, by misunderstandings, by misinterpretations, by um, theologies that aren't fully developed, not to be presumptuous, but if this fills you with fear, as it has me in my past, that's something that God wants to address this morning. This is a very important scripture, and it cannot be dealt with out of the whole context of the book of James, the Bible, and um, there's no substitute for good theology. And so if this is a refrigerator magnet on your refrigerator, and it drives you to service out of fear, I want you to reconsider that a little bit. So our series is about the gospel with the poor, and I love that title because anytime you say poor, we think about, oh, what can I do for them? What kind of stuff? Oh, let me get in my wallet. Let me, let me see what's about to expire in the cupboard, and I'll donate it before it goes bad, which I do all the time. I'm not denigrating that. It's better than throwing it away. But there, you, we start, oh, what can I do? What can I do? Oh, I could, I could give this coat. I don't wear this coat anymore. I could do this. I could do that. All good. All good. But not the point. And so I so much appreciate that when we're talking about the poor that uh, I haven't read John Wimber's book and I can't actually even find it. I don't know if anybody has a copy of the whole book. But I love that. The gospel with the poor. So if you separate the gospel from the poor, you're already off track. We're already off track. We're going to be touching on some of that because that's part of what's in this passage. People that say, well, I do all this stuff. If you do stuff without faith, that's different. It's not without value. It's always helpful to feed the poor, give them things, relieve suffering, People of all cultures and faiths and no faith at all do that, and it's wonderful, and I applaud that. But we're talking about something different as a church, as believers, and I love this gospel with the poor, not for the poor. Because the primary thing that the poor, however you define them in all the ways that you can be impoverished, the primary thing they need is to be with us, to have people with them. Because you know what? That's what you and I need as well, right? Whether we're poor or whether we're prosperous. And so, Today we're going to be focusing on, somewhat, on acts of service, acts of generosity. 
but really the best thing you can give is yourself. And so when people ask me about Waymakers, oh, I'd love to go and do something, I get that a lot, and, and that's, a, that's a great thing. First thing I always say is, come visit, come visit, hang out, see what you think, see what you like, see what you don't like, be with them, talk with them, be friends with them. It's about relationships. So much is about relationship. That's our primary function with God, and it's our primary function with each other. And that includes the objects of our compassion, our attention, our mercy. So I love the gospel with the poor. And so what we're going to do right now is we're just going to read through the whole text without comment, and then we're going to dive in a little deeper. And I, I, I got a computer now, which is really cool. I haven't had a computer in a long time, but I couldn't get it to print, so I'm going to be, this is a Bible, if you don't, <laughs> haven't seen one in a while. And this one's kind of cool. You see how, see how beat up it looks? When people see this, they're like, oh man, that dude really reads his Bible. No, that dude really buys cheap Bibles. So... <laughs> So apparently, Italian leather, no, no offense to any people of Italian heritage here, isn't really leather. I don't know what it is, but, you know, check it out. <laughs> it's under my fingernails. I find it in my car. It's on my clothes. I don't know what that's about. So James 2, 14 through 26. So just kind of, kind of read through this slowly, just kind of drink it in, and then we'll, we'll come back and talk about it. So... Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show, your, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good, exclamation point. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute? Are there any kids in the room? Any kids? Talk to me later, I'll tell you what that means. <laughs> Considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So that's the ambitious little bit we're trying to cover today. So I just want to direct you to this scintillating passage, James 1.1, 1, 1. and the reason I put that up is when you're studying the Bible, you can read the Bible devotionally, you can look up refrigerator magnets, you can do a scripture a day, but if you really want to try and understand what's in a book, it's all about the context, it's all about the background, it's all about the history. There's, there's a lot more to it than just a simple, literal reading. That's not always the right way to go. It's rarely the right way to go. So when James wrote this, he wrote this from a certain place, a certain time, a certain context, certain things were going on, 
and it was a certain James. Now, we can't say for sure even which James this is. There's pretty strong consensus that this was James, Jesus' brother. Now, people of certain faiths don't believe that Mary had any other children. We would not hold to that because the Bible is pretty clear that Jesus had brothers, and one of them's name was James. And looking at the biblical evidence, um, tradition in the church, what the early church fathers believed, that's the James that was head of the church in Jerusalem. He was a very prominent figure. So even though Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't really respect him before they understood who he was, which is understandable. I don't have any siblings, but if one of my siblings suddenly was being claimed as a Messiah, I'd be like, really? (laughs) Didn't you wrestle me in the olive grove and you pulled my robe up really high up (laughs) and ran off laughing? Wasn't that you? And now you're telling... No, I don't know if Jesus did that sort of thing. I I certainly believe he was a child and did child things that are fun. But uh, so so who is this James? So I, I, I am of the conviction this was James, Jesus' brother, It's the same James that was a prominent in the book of Acts. Now, that's important because we know that in the early church, a lot of things were going on there, and famine was one of them. So so James is very concerned about taking care of people, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So also, uh, when we read this passage, it's challenging because it seems, and I'm saying seems with very strong conviction, it seems to be in contrast or maybe even conflict with other things in Scripture, particularly the writings of Paul. I do not believe that it is. It's a different perspective, it's a different angle, it's a different thing, and I believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the Bible's own language, that, it was ins- that God inspired men to write, he, he inspired men to preserve that, edit that, change that, or whatever, collate that. You know, you look at the book of Psalms, it's a whole bunch of people writing a whole bunch of things. Somebody put that all together. We don't know all these answers, but I believe that the Bible as we have it is God's inspired word, authoritative, God-breathed, however you would choose to define that. I firmly believe that. And I don't believe anything in the book of James is in any way in conflict with anything that Paul wrote. So there is some question about the timing on the writing of the book of James. Most people seem to believe that it was written a little bit later so that James might have already read some of Paul's letters. I am kind of curious about the the position that James was very early and he wrote even before he ever got a chance to read maybe Paul's earlier writings like the epistle to the Galatians where Paul really starts to pound away about the grace of God and and God uses Paul to kind of expand our knowledge of who he is and how wonderful and deep and enduring his grace is. So if you find things in the book of James challenging, okay. I find things in challenging in the Bible all the time. I'm going to say this again later. If something's challenging to you, do not shrink away. Push further, push further. Because what you will find is not in conflict, consistent, reconcilable, and God is going to use that to deepen your understanding and bring you great great blessings. There's nothing more wonderful than than working through a difficult passage and coming to a deeper understanding of things. So if you're struggling with this, fine, struggle away. I'd be happy to talk to you, and there's lots of people here that would be happy to talk to you. So uh, we're going to just dive back into the first part of the passage and just work through this. We won't be working through the end part so much. I'll reference it again. But let's just kind of look at this piece by piece. Now keep in mind, we're kind of trying to mesh together two different subjects. We're talking about a very difficult topic, which is faith and works, how they work together. Is one preeminent? Is one precede the other? And we're talking about in the context of our uh, series, Gospel with the Poor, right? So we we don't want to lose that focus. So we can't really exhaustively deal with some of these very deep issues. But um, uh, we're going to touch on a lot of things. So in verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Can such faith 
save them? That's a very provocative statement, isn't it? And we don't actually, uh, it's hard to know exactly what James is talking about because there's certain key words in there that are really important. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith, claims to have faith? So I'm, uh, there's certainly the possibility what James is talking about here or uh, folks in the early church were very common who came into the services, came into the churches, even tried to assume leadership, but really weren't followers of Jesus. They were followers of their own pride and power, and they tried to make something of themselves and sometimes even profit from the church. So we don't know exactly what's going on here, but he's saying if you claim to have faith and you're not doing anything, he says, can that faith save you? Or he maybe he's asking the question, do you really have faith? Do you really have faith? So what we're trying to see is uh, that the faith compels us to act. It's not the action that saves us, but it's the faith that drives the action, and they come together in a very, very beautiful way. And so there's, there's a, a, um, a progression that happens as we come to faith. And, Paul, and there's scriptures that reference that when he says even the demons believe in God and shudder. Well, they have head knowledge, right? They know who God is, but they rebelled against him. It stayed in their head. They rejected that. They rejected um, the life that God had for them, the beautiful life that he had for them. And so for us, it starts in our head, right? We hear it. We understand the message. Then it moves to our heart. We believe. Paul says that. When you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be saved. So it moves from your head to your heart. And then James is making the point from there, it moves to your hands. Once you have that in your heart, you do things, right? And I'm using hands in kind of a broader sense because the gospel changes us. When we truly uh, turn our life and our will over to Jesus, uh, things start to change. Things that were acceptable with us before are no longer acceptable, right? The sin that entangles us, we start to disentangle from that. That's me disentangling, not dancing because I don't dance. Um, well, I do dance. Here's me dancing. But um, so heart, head to hands. And as, and as we engage with that, the deepest level is it gets into our character, that transformation into Christ-likeness. And of all the things that God's concerned about, he is much more concerned about your progression through that to the point of a Christ-like character than he is what you do, what you do. Because there are wonderful believers who will do relatively little by some people's estimation and people that will do unbelievable acts of service for others it makes no difference as far as their salvation, God's love for them. He's concerned about who you are, not what you do. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to cry when I tell the story, but it's so important to me. Uh, one time I was praying, and I was just like kind of lamenting all the things that I should have done that I didn't do, and God spoke to me. If that's on your grid, I think it's on most people's grids. If it sounds weird, I don't know how else to say it. But God spoke to me. I was like, oh, man, I wish I'd have done that. I'm sorry I didn't do this, blah, 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 blah. And God spoke to me and said, I don't care if you do one more thing. And I, I just started crying. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's grace, right? But I want to do things. I want to do things. I want to carry his message. I want to bring relief and help and the message of the gospel. That's the difference, right? That's when it gets down, starts to get down into your character. It becomes who you are. So the, the, the dichotomy that James is talking about, faith or belief, it's a false dichotomy. And so someone's just saying, I have acts, I have acts. And they're not really demonstrating that faith. Are they really? Are they really there? Are they really there? So um, let's look at uh, the next couple of verses. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? What good is it? Uh, and so I could ask anybody in this room, 
Now, some of you may be first-time visitors, maybe it wouldn't apply to you, but if, you're, if you come here, if any other person in this church showed up at your door, let's say David, our pastor, showed up at your door, and he lost everything. He had one of those Job moments, right? He's like, he's like, it's all gone. My family's gone. My home is gone. I have no money. I don't even have a coat. It's winter, and I haven't eaten in three days. Would you say, be warm and well-fed? Be on your way? God bless you, David. Of course not. Of course not. Keep in mind, uh, I keep sorry to say Peter. James is talking about his brothers and sisters. So I think when they read this, they would say, they wouldn't, they're not taking that as a challenge. They would go, no, that's absurd. Of course. Of course I would help them. Of course I would help them. But some people weren't and didn't. And you've got to question what that means about their faith and their character, right? Whether it really was in there or they were just along for the, I don't know, free meals. So I think that passage is meant to offend. It's meant to be absurd. And so we know that's true. We know that's true about us. And we all, as best we can, need to be prepared to help each other. And, and I was at Caleb's uh, um, study group on Saturday day. I won't tell who said all these things, but people said some really wonderful things. And one person uh, talked about kind of the concentric circles of care, right? Like, first, it's your family. What wouldn't you do for your family? That extends to our church family. Then it extends out from there and out from there. There's some people you don't say no to. When I'm on that ramp and that guy's got the sign, sometimes I say no, sometimes I've said yes, right? And we all got our own decisions to make about that. But when it's our family, our blood, the answer's yes, right? When it's this family, the answer's yes. So we all have to be prepared. And so when, when uh, uh, James says this, it's meant to be shocking and absurd. Who would do that? In fact, I joke about that, you know, because now our, uh, uh, our big thing that people uh, say kind of in a very trite manner is, oh, thoughts and prayers, your thoughts and prayers are with me. No, I don't, I don't have any money. My thoughts and prayers are with you, though. So, so uh, sometimes I joke, if somebody tells me something really horrible that happened to them, I'll go, well, be warm and well-fed, you know. <laughs> but uh, it meant, meant to offend. And so 17 through 19, let's look at that. Uh, in the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action as dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show you me your faith without deeds, the thing he's talking about, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. It's not either or. The deeds are a demonstration of the faith. And it's that in action is what really communicates faith. And it can be really small things. I think of things that I've done that were nothing to me that turned out to be so significant to people. Uh, I just retired after 23 years of probation and parole, and I've been to several funerals during that time. And man, when your parole officer shows up at your child's funeral, for some people, it's the most incredible thing in the world. They just can't believe it happened. And I'm like, I just stopped by to pay my respects. But it's those little things that sometimes mean so much, things that demonstrate your care and your character. And so... This passage ends with a, a challenge from James. He, uh, he uses the word fool, and the word fool is not something we want to throw out lightly. You know, Jesus said, call no man a fool, right? And in biblical terms, most of you probably have heard this before, foolishness is about your spiritual sense, right? Your ability to know and understand God. And, you know, if you call somebody foolish, you're saying, man, you're, you're, it's, it's not about them being comical or a buffoon. It's about them being spiritually bankrupt and not getting it at all. And he's like, if you don't understand this, you're foolish. Oh, I jumped past a, 
you believe that there's one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So that's that head knowledge. I tell you what, I'm, I'm very interested in um, demonology in Scripture and anything about the spiritual world. It's always been fascinating to me. I love this so much. The demons believe that. They know that. But the best part is they shudder. They shudder. What does that tell you about the power of our Lord and the power that they have over us? They shudder. And I don't want to talk about Putin, but <laughs> someday he will shudder. And that, that brings me some, some hope and joy, knowing that in, a, in, in, the, in the spiritual perspective in the coming of the kingdom, that all this will be settled and everyone will know and see who he is and every knee will bow out of reverence or out of fear. So I don't know why I got off on that. So uh, Peter says, you foolish person, is there no evidence that faith without deeds is useful? So that's, that's when he talks about um, his other examples of uh, Abraham and Rahab. So he, so he really talks about three things. I'm going to sit on that just for a second because they're significant. So the first thing he talked about was their own community. Hey, if one of your brothers or sisters is without food or clothing, would you turn them away? No, that's absurd. Of course I wouldn't. And so you got to remember what's going on in Jerusalem at that time. There were really poor people there. The church had launched at Pentecost. All these Jews from around the region had came to celebrate the Passover. And, uh, and then they stumbled into or were pulled into this amazing event in Acts chapter 2 when they hear about the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit falls and thousands come to faith. And, and some of them stayed forever. And some of them stayed for a long time and then carried the message back to their homes. They had to be cared for. And uh, it wasn't like our world where there was a social, uh, social safety net such as it is, but these people needed help and cared for. So this was a church formed by the unifying faith in Christ, established by the move of the Spirit. They were united in their joint suffering, persecution and loss and lack, and they were caring for one another. Paul, uh, James uses that as an example of what faith in action looks like. Then he talks about Abraham it's hard to find anyone in the Bible any more significant than Abraham. He's the father of all who believe. You know, God had uh, set up this perfect garden for Adam and Eve to live in, and they failed him, and he kept, kept pounding away and pounding away. Uh, their children went awry. Noah's children went, went uh, wayward. And then the catastrophic failure at Babel, when he scatters people to all the winds, and he stops trying to deal with nations, and he picks a man, Abraham, to be his focus, the first family of faith. I don't, you could put it so many ways, probably no, no phrase is entirely accurate. But Abraham's the father of all who believe. It was his focus in establishing the rule of God and the coming kingdom. We still owe that to Abraham and his obedience. He was God's family in faith and problems and promise. So we have a family in Jerusalem caring for each other. We have Abraham, the first family of faith. And he talks about Rahab. Rahab is one of those precursors to the universal uh, claim of the gospel that it's not just for the Jews, it's for everyone. Rahab was not Jewish. She was a Gentile. There's other examples of that. And so like Abraham, he left his country, he left his people, he abandoned his gods in pursuit of Yahweh, right? Of Yahweh. And uh, Rahab did the same thing. She met these spies and something in her said, this is right, this is true, I need to help them. And Rahab, you, you may know this, uh, she went on to be in the lineage of Jesus. In the, in the genealogies in Matthew, she's the uh, mother of Boaz who married Ruth, who was part of the lineage of Jesus through, um, through um, on Joseph's side. So really amazing, amazing stuff that these people did. And so exactly, uh, James brings those up as examples of how they act. 
So all these examples of greater significance they seem on the surface, you know. Abraham standing there, his God saying, take your son up on the mountain and offer him a sacrifice. Isaac saying, where's the sacrifice? God will provide, God will provide. Demonstrating faith even as he climbed that mountain. And that was such a quintessential moment in the history of, of our faith when Abraham stood there over his son, willing and being obedient to what he said. And you know, Abraham lived in a world where there were gods that demanded the sacrifice of children, right? And can you imagine what was going through his mind? Is Yahweh the same? Was I wrong? Is, is this who he is? And he gets up there. He's, he's got that faith. He said, God will provide the sacrifice. And that moment when God interrupted that process, he knew this was something really different. This is different than all these other gods that demand this sort of blood. That same kind of practice that brought God's vengeance through Israel to clean the land of child sacrifice, among other things. Of course, that's probably the most detestable thing we can imagine. And it happened over and over and over. And so Abraham's act was very significant and very symbolic of what was to come because God was going to put his own son on that altar, right? And he wasn't going to withdraw. He was going to sacrifice his son for you and for me. Very, very, very significant. So I don't know what all we can bring in just our little 30 minutes, but what we do is very, very important. And if we do nothing, that is very, very important. So I think the most we can do in this short time is just kind of provoke thinking and, um, and hopefully move you closer to action if you're in, in action, right? Uh, we talk about, oh, I'm not going to get into that. So I want to uh, just hit a couple more scriptures to just kind of tie it all together. I feel, um, knowing my own history of struggling with legalism and really not completely, taking a long time to really comprehend how deep and wonderful God's grace was. I was, uh, the first church I ever walked into was uh, a storefront Pentecostal church. You guys probably heard this a bunch of times. And I was very legalistic, and I loved that church. And I went to another church that I loved, and I went to a Bible college that I loved where I was steeped in that theology. I moved away from that theology, and I went to the other extreme, going to a, a Presbyterian seminary and hearing about the Reformed faith and God's mercy. And, and y- y- you know, there's a balance in there somewhere. I, I profited greatly from everything I was exposed to and brought away wonderful things from that. But whenever we see things like faith without works is dead, we really got to understand what that means and come to peace with that and that balance. And that balance always has to end with us understanding that God's love and grace and mercy is extravagant but beyond belief and good beyond belief. So I want to look at just a couple of scriptures to kind of tie this together. Uh, I wish we had more time. So here's a statement I want you to consider. We want to be, uh, we want to be people of faith and action, not just people of action. You know, so if you're driven to do something out of guilt, fear, concern, oh, I'm not going to be good with God if I don't do this, I would urge you to just pause, pause, and work through that, right? Um, there's still things you can do, but we want to be those people that are acting with purpose, and that purpose is faith, that purpose is being with the poor, not over the poor, or, or uh, assuaging our own guilt or our own need to be needed. It's a deep, deep stuff that we don't even have time to talk about. But let's look at a couple of scriptures to kind of wrap this up. Uh, and this would be a good time for the worship team to come up because um, I'm talking really fast, and if I don't say it now, I might talk so fast I don't have time to get up. Oh, look, they're already here. Oh, look, my girls. Uh, so this is, this is Paul's writing, and you know, the book, book of Ephesians represents some of the uh, really fully formed theology of, of Paul. This is theology that 
as, as Paul has written more and more, starting with Galatians on through Romans and Ephesians is, is late, he, uh, uh, he's really hitting his stride, you know, working through the, whole, the Holy Spirit, working through him. And he's saying some very important things that are really, really necessary to tie into all this when we think about being there for the poor and feeding and clothing and giving money and all that. So I love these. Uh, and at Waymakers, we talk about these all the time. If anybody's, I don't think uh, my wife knows, but if you've been there many times, you're going to hear this over and over and over. So, oops, what's going on here? Things gone crazy. Uh, so, first Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. I've, I've, I know I've used the scripture here before, but you just got to pause on that. He chose you before the creation of the world? I mean, the magnitude of that is just startling. But that's what God did. Before any of this existed, it existed in his mind, not just in theory, not just in how the stars were arranged and how the planets would orbit and how the matter was constructed, but you, you, all of you, 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 all of you, he chose us before he created anything. That's a pretty strong statement of his grace, isn't it? To be blameless, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, his, his primary motivation above all else, he predestined us, and if that's a hard word for you, just, just flow through that right now. Predestined us for adoption, adoption, to sonship. He, he predestined us to be in his family before any family existed. Through Jesus Christ, the only way in, not through works, right? Lest any man be able to boast. In accordance with the pleasure, his pleasure and will. And I love that phrase so much. He wanted it. And I guarantee you, if God wants something, it happens. It happens. His will is inexorable, unstoppable. And it gave him pleasure to do it. There's lots of places in the Bible that talks about things that please him and what brings him pleasure. And Jesus talking about the joy set before him at the cross, right? This brings him pleasure. And then Paul responds to something that's lawfully as only one can, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves. Wow. What other response could you have after list? If you really understand that, what else can you do but thank and praise God for that? It's amazing, amazing. So not only did he choose us to be in his family, look at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Huh. James talked about that. James and Paul are talking about the same thing now, right? And here's the part, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In advance for us to do. So anything that you contemplate doing, think about doing, anything that you um, uh, think you should do, um, God's planned that in advance. He's a partner with you. He's inciting that up in you. He's stirring that up in you if it truly is through faith and not through guilt or profit or pride, Right? He prepared these things for you to do, and they can be the simplest things in the world. And Jesus uh, uh, sanctioned that when he said, if you give someone a cup of water, right? It doesn't have to be starting a school in Nicaragua, which amazes me, Jeff. I mean, that's amazing. People do unbelievable things, but it's no less significant than handing someone a cup of water at the right time with the right heart, full of Christ's love. And he's not going to ask you to start a school in Nicaragua if you can't. If you're not ready, but he, he expects you to do something, right? He expects you because faith without works is dead. 
I wish we had more time to even talk about what a dead faith is. That's a kind of a weird concept. That's a weird concept. So when we put these things together, it takes so much of the pressure off us, right? He chose us. He's preparing these acts for us. So I, I don't know um, if that wraps it up at all for you, but, if, but uh, uh, um, I, I really hope that if anyone here is struggling with works and feeling like you haven't done enough and feeling like you're not good enough because of what you haven't done, that God somehow um, deals with that today. So kind of the takeaway before we go to worship here is um, the invitation. I want you to check your theology. If any of this was hard for you to understand, contrary, maybe made you mad, confused you, if you read James and you're just like, feel like you're crushed, work through that. I'd be happy to talk to you. There's lots of people happy to talk to you. Because when we really get our theology, when we get the full orb theology of the New Testament and of what Jesus has done for us, it's much better than we can imagine. Much better than we can imagine. Um, based on those verses in Ephesians, trust God. Trust God. It's His plan. Anytime you think of an act of service, remember, tell yourself, He prepared this for me before the creation of the world. Right? He created that in you because He is pleased to share his mission with us. That's what families do. He's not calling us in to be in his family and saying, sit back, watch what I'm going to do next. He's like, come on, we're doing this together. We're doing this together. Blows my mind, blows my mind. And knowing that, we have to prepare to respond. We have to be ready to do that. When we see that, we need to take action. And, you know, one of the things I like to say is, you know, people say, oh, I trust God. God will provide this, God will provide that. Well, when something is provided to you, your provision is from someone else's preparation, right? It doesn't just come out of nowhere. If you need food and someone has food to give you, that's because they've been blessed with that. They've prepared. And so as you think about gospel with the poor and what you want to do, primarily first, give yourself. Be with them. Be a friend. Be a companion. Be, be peers with the poor, however you define that, whatever aspect we're talking about. But when you're ready to take action, prepare yourself to do that. Again, someone at the group, same person actually. We talked about buying gift cards to keep in the car whenever they see someone at the at a, at a uh, on ramp, right? And feel like they should give them something instead of giving them cash. Give them a gift card to a grocery store. That's awesome. That's preparing. Preparing to be generous, right? Okay, so um, we're gonna stop right there for now.